Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, The Lord Disciplines the One He Loves. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 29, verses 1 to 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Pastor Guy Maddox tells the story of a young woman in his congregation who wrote him from graduate school. She reported that her studies were doing fine, and then she added that she had begun a rigorous program to lose weight. Indeed, she was determined to lose 78 pounds. And then she added that she had already lost 16 pounds and then added a Bible reference. It was John 6, verse 9. So Pastor Maddox looked up the reference and he had to smile. It said, but what are they among so many? You know, the thing about discipline is that it requires a long period of time. You you never accomplish the goals of discipline in a few days or even months. Discipline is about life change, life transformation. And because it's about life, real discipline does take a lifetime. Let me read to you a very important passage from the book of Hebrews about discipline. In fact, the book of Hebrews quotes the book of Proverbs and then adds its own comments from Hebrews 12, 5 to 8. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, that is, endure hardship. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all, that is, all God's children have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You know, as surprising and even alarming as this passage might seem, Hebrews clearly teaches that God deliberately brings hardship and even suffering into our lives. You know, the writer of Hebrews speaks of pain in order to discipline us, and that he does this because he loves us as his sons and daughters. It's very important to understand the difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment deals with justice. To punish means to satisfy the demands of justice. And so does God punish Christians for their sin? Well, no, he does not. All Christians believe and know that Christ was punished for us on his cross. But to discipline, that's another word. It comes from the root word to disciple, and it means to correct, to shape, to change, to transform. God's interested in shaping believers into the image of Christ. This is a part of sanctification. It's the work of perfecting us in our holiness. And so for us to be disciplined is evidence of God's great love for us, we who are his elect. Now, with that in mind, let's read our text. So, I'm beginning to read from Genesis 29, verses 1 to 12. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. 
Water the sheep and go, pasture them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now remember, the theme today is the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And as we've seen, by meeting Jacob in Bethel, God indicates that he has chosen Jacob even though Jacob has not yet chosen God. And even though Jacob is, as of yet, an unconverted man, because God has chosen him and extends his covenant of love to him, he begins to discipline him, and here's how it happens. On his journey, running from his brother who seeks to kill him, Jacob arrives in Haran. It's about 600 kilometers from his home, and he's been months on the road, and he doesn't have a map, and he's never been there before, and he's not sure where he is. And in verse 4, he approaches the shepherd and asks where they're from, and they say, Haran. Well, wow. He says, do you know Laban? And they say, we do. In fact, that's his daughter, Rachel. She's coming right now with the sheep. You know, I must stop here because anyone reading Genesis closely will notice the similarity between this account and the account in Genesis 24. You know, in Genesis 24, which was many years earlier, Abraham had sent his servant to the region of Padan Aram and to the city of Haran. He is to go to his kindred and find a wife for Isaac. And in both accounts, that is in Genesis 24 and now here in Genesis 29, we see the providential hand of God at work. In Genesis 24, while Abraham's servant is watering his camel, Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, comes with a water jar on her shoulder. And in Genesis 29, while Jacob is speaking with the villagers of Haran, Rachel comes out to water her father's sheep. The encounter with both of these women, with Rebekah and now with Rachel, is God's providential hand. And, and we, the readers of this account, should not be surprised. We know that this world is God's world and that he controls all things. You know, providence means what Romans 8.28 says, that, that God works out all things for the good of those whom he has called. But there's a difference between the account of Genesis 24 and that of chapter 29. In chapter 24, where Abraham's servant met Rebekah, he kneels down to pray and he asks God to bring the right woman along. Abraham's servant is a man of faith and he's asking God to arrange the details so that the woman chosen by God might be found for Isaac. But in chapter 29, there is no prayer. Jacob is not yet a man of faith. He still believes that his own clever impulses will lead him to the right woman. But as we're going to see, God is at work. He's already claimed Jacob as his own. But in order to bring Jacob to himself, he'll have to break Jacob of his sense of self-confidence. And by the way, if I can interject a word of application here, is it not so with you as well? You know, as long as you resist and express dependence on God, or while you're still under the illusion that you're the captain of your own ship, God will send his discipline into your life in order to break you of all such illusions. But that's not apparent to Jacob, at least not yet. As of yet, he's still ignorant of God's ways, and so the drama takes shape. 
There's a stone over the well of water because wells and cisterns were often covered by a large, thick, flat stone with a round hole cut in the middle, and and the stone was often so large that it would require at least two or three men to roll it away. And and we also learned that it was removed at certain times. So the stone is necessary for at least two reasons. I mean, one is safety, stop someone from falling down into the well, but the second is that the stone would restrict the well to only those shepherds who had the right to use it. And when Jacob learns that Rachel is approaching, we again see the the contrast between him and Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant never revealed who he was, at least not at first. He observed Rebekah for some time to see whether the Lord had made his journey a success or not. He was waiting on God. God would show his will. Now, in contrast, Jacob spends no time observing Rachel, except he does notice how beautiful she is. And then to impress her with his strength, he he lifts the stone by himself. Then he kisses her and weeps aloud. You know, success. He's found the right wife for himself. Have you noticed how like Jacob so many of us are? Here's a sad truth. Many at church make major decisions without prayer and careful study of Scripture. It's also true about us individually. You know, we buy a house, we pray later. We make an investment, pray later. Marry a wife or husband, pray later. And even when we do pray, we've not studied the word to gain God's wisdom and to wait for his leading. And then how often after something goes wrong, we lose a lot of money or we get involved in the wrong career or job. And then later, well, we're angry with God. But why didn't we consult him and study the word in advance? Isn't our lack of prayer, careful study of Scripture, godly principles of wisdom, aren't these matters of neglect? And aren't these a clear indication that we aren't, number one, looking for God's direction, and number two, unaware of divine providence, and hence we aren't seeking the signs that God is giving us all around us? We're not looking for the Holy Spirit to nudge us. Instead, we're secure in the idea that we're the captain of our own ship, And we foolishly assure ourselves that, you know, we can chart our own course and we're going to be happy. You know, we forget that it's God and not ourselves that directs our own future. This month, check out Truth in Life Today as Dr. John Newfeld begins a four-week study in the book of Matthew. And then, beginning in July, join Dr. Newfeld as he invites special guests Stephanie Gray, Phil Calloway, and Paul Park into the studio to discuss some of the most timely topics of the day, including the sanctity of life, living with hope in dark places, and the impact of God's people on today's culture. Truth in Life Today can be seen every Sunday on Vision TV at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, anytime online at backtothebible.ca, or by subscribing to Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app or YouTube channel. Truth in Life Today is an example of one more Bible teaching resource made available through the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Perhaps this month you'd support the ongoing efforts of this ministry with a donation toward our critical fiscal year-end goal of $342,000. Your gift sustains every program and resource of Back to the Bible Canada nationally and globally. Call us today with your financial support at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's continue to read in Genesis 29. 
You know, Jacob has met Rachel and he's told her who he is and she's run off to tell her family. And the drama is about to begin. So I'm reading verses 13 and 14. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. I know that for some of us, this idea that, you know, would only seek a wife from one's own extended family, it sounds somewhat creepy. But the law found in Leviticus 18 as to who one could marry that had not yet been written. And my own personal theory is that as the human race develops and as genetic abnormalities continually increase throughout successive generations, it becomes necessary to prohibit marriage among close relatives. But at this stage in human history, no such law was yet necessary. And even so, it was never unlawful to marry your cousin, which is what Rachel is to Jacob. And Rachel's father Laban is Jacob's mother's brother. They're cousins. You know, a further consideration is that at this time, Genesis is about creating a godly line, one that's faithful to Abraham's God. You know, this revelation of the one true God is, is well known in Abraham's extended family, even though most of them are not faithful. So that's the background. Jacob is safe within family. And he stays in Laban's house for one month. And there's more. He finds he loves Rachel. Jacob has everything in control, or does he? Because as we continue to read, we will find that Jacob is about to embark on the most discouraging period of his life. The God who loves Jacob has chosen him as the bearer of the Abrahamic blessing, but he's about to discipline and shape his man. So let's continue to read verses 15 to 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. See, I want you to notice another difference between Abraham's servant and Jacob. You know, first of all, notice Jacob's lack of judgment. Verse 13 said that Jacob told Laban everything or all these things. You know, most likely that means he told him everything about even the deception against his own father. And here again, I contrast Jacob to Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant comes to Nahor. He comes with a camel filled with wealth. Jacob comes to Nahor running for his life, and he's got no wealth at all. Indeed, he's running for his life, and Laban watches him, and he finds out he works well, and he offers him, you know, if you will, a job. But please remember, in that day, people didn't get jobs the way we do. In fact, in that day, they became servants. And here's Jacob, the one who had the prophecy that, you know, he would rule over his brother and his family, and he now becomes his uncle's servant. And when he tells Laban that he's fallen for Rachel, he has nothing to give his uncle except seven years of labor, working for no wage at all, to marry the woman he loves. And Laban realizes his advantage, and he's going to exploit it. And here's where we find God disciplining Jacob. 
Jacob, the man who stole Esau's birthright and blessing, finds that his brother is back home with many wives and gaining wealth while he works seven years just to marry the woman he loves. And in the end, he's going to have nothing. God is disciplining him and it's painful. You know how humility is attained? It's when you're treated in a manner that's lower than what you think you deserve. You know, some of us are very quick to defend ourselves. We're sensitive to any slight. According to 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud. And you know you're proud when you're quickly offended. You demand people give you proper respect. And then God says, that's not going to stand. He's going to discipline us and it's going to be painful. But for Jacob, because he so loves Rachel, he's enamored with her beauty, and all that doesn't bother him. He serves for seven years. But the pain had not yet begun for Jacob. He was being disciplined, but he didn't notice because, well, he loved Rachel. And then came that moment when his world came crashing down. He's now worked and served for seven years. Now we come to verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. I find it fascinating that Jacob has to go to Laban and demand his wife. As we'll find out from observing the character of Laban, Laban would have let Jacob work for many years and never have said a word. Laban would only pay if Jacob was aggressive enough to demand it, but Jacob does and the wedding goes on as arranged. And just so that we get a sense of what actually happened, the first thing is that they plan a wedding feast. Now, it was the custom in that day that brides would be heavily veiled, so Jacob would not see her face or her eyes or her form. And secondly, by all indications, the feast would last all day, well into the night, and I assume that by that time, although the text doesn't say so, Jacob would be slightly drunk. He then takes his bride into the tent in the pitch dark. He makes love to her. He can't see anything. Now, before I go on, it's often asked why Leah goes along with this. Why doesn't she say, it's her in the tent? Again, the text doesn't say, but we have to make a few assumptions. I mean, first of all, she's older and she expects to be married first. And secondly, Rachel is more beautiful than she. Leah has lighter colored eyes. And in that day, a woman with very dark eyes was considered beautiful. And thirdly, there was a great rivalry between the two sisters. And it may have been that Leah was attracted to Jacob and she would have wanted him to be her husband and robbed her sister. I don't know, but Leah could have thought all of that. So let's continue to read. And I'm now in verses 22 to 27. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. I hope you can see the obvious similarity between Rachel and Leah and Jacob and Esau. Jacob comes before his blind father with the help of his mother, pretends to be his brother and steals the prize. Seven years later, in the dark, when Jacob can't see, Leah, with the help of her father, pretends to be her sister, comes to Jacob and now deceives him and steals the prize. 
You know, for the first time in Jacob's life, he feels the full weight of what it is to want something and then to have it stolen by deception. And that pain of that moment is blinding. How does he get over the shock? You know, I got the ugly one and there's nothing he can do. And after a ceremony and the consummation of the marriage, he can't back out of it. Like Isaac's blessing, when it's done, it's done. And so Jacob, without even talking to poor Leah, runs out of his tent in in rage. And he now looks just like his brother Esau. And he demands Laban explain himself. I served you for Rachel. That was our deal. You deceived me. (laughs) Look who's talking. And Laban doesn't even apologize. That's how things are done here, he says. Fascinating, isn't it? Can you hear Laban's own anger? It's as if he now claims to be offended by Jacob. How dare you to ask me to violate a custom in our land? Jacob's helpless. Laban has all the power to do what he wants. Now, of course, no sooner has Laban said that, that he proposes a solution, something he's been planning for seven years. And after a week, he can marry Rachel and he'll work another seven years. And after 14 years, Jacob is going to have two wives. He's going to have children. He's going to have no bank account and no material wealth. Oh, the disciplining hand of God, shaping a man to depend on God alone. You know, I suspect that Leah was not aware of what was going to happen. Her dreams of having Jacob to herself were going to be crushed in a moment. And so from that day on, all of Jacob's dreams, as well as Rachel's dreams, as well as Leah's dreams, everyone's dreams are crushed by deception. See, what happens to you when everything you've hoped for doesn't materialize? Well, you might say what happened is God's loving, disciplining hand coming to shape and make you into the man or woman that's fit for eternity. That's what's beginning to now unfold in this story. How how God loves those whom he has chosen. John, thanks for your message today. So let me ask you a quick question. Does God use the actions of bad people to discipline his children? Yeah, and uh, sometimes in a number of ways that we wouldn't have expected. I mean, sometimes the unrighteous may say things to believers which causes us to look up and say, wow, I wonder whether or not that's from God. And then even in the case of, you know, as we have with Laban here, I mean, God has clearly brought him into Jacob's life. And and sometimes the people that we genuinely don't want in our lives have been sent from God. And um, it's helpful for us to think that God is sovereign in all matters and to always say, rather than, you know, spending my time saying I didn't want it, saying, God, show me what I must learn. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The mission of Back to the Bible Canada is simple. We teach the Bible. It's a commitment to bringing the light of Christ to a dark world in such desperate need. We all face dark days, but we know that the living Word of God brings light and hope like nothing else. If Back to the Bible Canada or any of its associated ministries or resources have impacted your life with Jesus, we're hoping this month you would join us in reaching an important fiscal year-end goal of $342,000. Your gift makes these ministries possible every day. 
and continues to sustain the Bible teaching programs you enjoy on this station and the many other mediums made available for teaching the Bible within Canada or in fact around the world. Would you offer your support this month? Your generosity makes this ministry possible. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.